0: Hey, OCD family community, guess who's back? And no, I'm not just talking about the return of pumpkin spice and everything nice over at Starbucks, though I'm not ashamed to admit I've already demonstrated my patronage, and uh, if that's wrong, I don't want to be right. But here we are, launching season two with an amazing season ahead. So make yourself comfy, because it's family time. I'm Nicole Morris, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Mental Health Correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All righty. I can just say, it feels so good to be back with the fam and doing our full-length episodes, y'all. I mean, it was a busy but quick summer. And I'm really proud of the water cooler chats that published wherever you enjoy your podcasts and YouTube. I know folks like more condensed content at times, but I can honestly say those shorts took me like 10 times longer to format. I mean, I guess that's what happens when a therapist tries her hand at animation. But I have to say, I'm pretty proud of the end product, and I managed to surpass my own expectations, and that is saying a lot because I'm excellent at giving myself unrealistically high expectations. It's true. But thanks again for everyone who joined us, and I'll note that I'm going to continue publishing over on YouTube if that's your thing, so you can continue to stream there if you fancy. And I'm working on adding the catalog from season one to our OCD family podcast channel on YouTube as well. So if you enjoy yourself some sound waves and subtitles, fam, I got you. Okay, as much as I like to chitty chat, and I would love to catch up on all the things, y'all, I've got to tell you about today's guest, Dr. Patrick McGrath, the chief clinical officer at NoCD. That's NOCD, which just happens to be the world's leading provider of virtual therapy for OCD. No big deal, right? Um, totally a big deal. It's not every day I get to snag some time with a C-level exec, but when it comes to the OCD family community... Patrick is beyond generous. Patrick is also a fellow Midwesterner with a history of doing dynamic work out of Chicago, where he opened up an intensive outpatient partial hospitalization and residential treatment program for anxiety disorders, school refusal, and OCD with Ascension, Illinois, Alexian Brother Behavioral Health Hospital. Boy, imagine squeezing that name in one of those Lister employer boxes. That is a mouthful. But they also do important work around alcohol or substance dependence, which happens to be relevant to what we're talking about today. But before we get into that, I just want to say that Patrick, in his over 24 years as a licensed clinical psychologist treating OCD, has also served as a member of the scientific and clinical advisory board of the International OCD Foundation, that's also known as IOCDF, is a Fellow at the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapists, was the past president of OCD Midwest, an IOCDF affiliate, an author, a presenter, a documentary contributor, featured on Hoarders a few times. I mean, the man has been busy. And he's coming to our family table today because we're talking about when OCD is running an open tab with substance use disorder. And we're going to discuss this from both our family lens and a practitioner lens. But first, y'all, I have just a few quick housekeeping notes. I mean, would this really even be family time if there wasn't a little housework? <laughs> but seriously, I want to know really quickly that substance use disorder or SUD can bring up some very predictable yet familiar challenges to that of OCD. And to that end, I want to provide a brief trigger warning that we will be talking about suicidal ideation as well as referencing death. So please stream with discretion. And if you or your loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can dial 988 here in the States for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline or your country's corresponding support service. Also, 911 or go to your local ER. You're worth it. Also, a special welcome to our new family here, especially if you're new to you or your loved one's diagnosis. I know wrapping your head around this content can feel like a lot, and I promise you're not alone in that. But give yourself some grace. Pause when you need to, or even take a break. It's okay. We'll be here for you when you're ready to move forward. Also, I'm mindful that we're all joining the discussion from different points in our journeys. The terminology can feel like a lot, the concepts can be a lot, and so if you need a refresher and you're like, what exactly is exposure and response prevention, ERP, or anything else, feel free to reference back to any of our dynamic episodes from Season 1, or hit up a water cooler chat if you want a drive through version. And a friendly reminder that I always cite and provide links to support and resources mentioned in each episode over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. Just look on the blog to find more info for the corresponding episode. It's free, and hey, it's available for you, fam. But first, let's bring it back to Patrick, y'all, because I can't wait to share more. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. It's my pleasure to have Dr. Patrick McGrath with us today. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about OCD today, but we're also going to be talking about substance use disorder. You were just on a panel at the 28th International IOCDF Conference talking about this topic And I think that it is really important because we see some overlaps, not only in the co-occurrence or maybe even that domino effect of having a substance use disorder might trigger some OCD symptomology or vice versa. Maybe coping with OCD with self-medicating through substance use that can grow into that substance use disorder. And so I wanted to really start off there, because also when we talk about what goes on for the family and loved ones, when your loved one is suffering from both OCD and substance use, there's a lot of similarities in what can happen in relationships, the amount of distress, some of the some of the very lovely, well-intentioned things that people will do to try and support their loved one that sometimes can also reinforce some of that. And so just wanted to start off by talking a broader overview for our family audience that's tuning in about the overlap and the prevalence of OCD and substance use disorder.
1: Yeah, up to probably, I mean, some of the research shows up to almost a third of people with OCD will dabble in substances as a way to try to manage their intrusive thoughts and images and urges. Mm-hmm. You know, I think to my Good friend margaret's Sisson, who lost her son riley and started the riley's wish foundation and riley had discovered at an early age that drinking The beer he found in his parents' basement or garage was a great way to shut his mind off for about half an hour. And Mm -hmm. so that led to, over time, a dependence upon substances as a way to try to manage the OCD and the ups and downs that Riley went through and getting help and getting treatment and even things that you don't think about. You know, I I love the conferences and things, but the conference Riley went to was in Chicago at the hotel there. And when you walk into that hotel lobby. Half of it's a bar. Right. Well, that was a real easy thing for people who have substance use issues to relapse on. And turns out, I found out later there were people who I then treated when I started doing more work in this area. There were people that that night, uh, that weekend, were had relapsed because it was just so easily available. And obviously, every hotel that you're going to have a large convention, it's going to have a bar and a restaurant in it. So I think now it's more about. How do you help people prepare for situations like that and why now there's even 12-step meetings or an AA meeting at a lot of the conferences now, just to make sure that people have the support that they need to not just go to the bar and hang out with other people and have temptations and stuff. So back to your, sorry, I deferred a little bit there. but um, No,
0: you're good. And I think it's a good point because sometimes even mini bars stocked in hotel rooms. In the rooms. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's good to even call ahead and request, if there is a minibar, could you please remove it from the room so that I don't have easy access?
0: Right. Yeah. To that end, then, when we're thinking about the likelihood, you're saying roughly a third. That's pretty high. We'll at least dabble. And there is a difference between having some use and substance use disorder, but it is a pretty Mm -hmm. slippery slope in terms of particularly what kind of drugs or medication of choice that you might be engaging in. 100%.
1: And it is amazing the similarities then. When I opened up the Foglia Family Foundation Residential Treatment Center, and it ran for several years as treating people who have both anxiety, OCD, trauma, and substance use, Mm -hmm. uh, or one or the other. But it was amazing to see the similarities between the two sides of the house, right? And, And I could Take all the language that I used for anxiety and OCD groups and Mm -hmm. very, very easily apply it to people who had substance use issues and ended up then just doing a lot of groups together between the two because so much of it made sense. You know, why does somebody who is using substances continue to use substances? Well, because if they stop using and they go into withdrawal, it's really uncomfortable well, why does somebody with OCD do a compulsion? Because if they sit with an obsession, it's really uncomfortable. So there's so much immediate gratification that goes on between the two of what can I do to feel good right now? And that's take the drug or the alcohol or do the compulsion. And that gives me some relief for a little while until it comes back again. And then I, then I do it again and I do it again. and Right. You see people who consistently do compulsions and you can see other people who smoke three packs of cigarettes a day because the moment that nicotine level starts going down, even just a little bit, it's like, I need more. I need it. I need that shot back up again. It's so uncomfortable to not have it at that level. So Right.
0: Um, well, and you get that urgency feeling. Yes. Also, I think an important thing that you're noting, well, at least I'm hearing if we kind of zoom out too, is like there's those physiological triggers. We're not just talking about the thought processes, but you think about kind of those medical symptoms of withdrawal and still some of those huge physiological interceptive cues that you can experience with NOCD too. Sometimes it's oh, just like even a low blood sugar feeling or whatnot. If you feel mm-hmm. like you need to eat, people go through those different signs and symptoms. They don't even think about it as a mental health issue. They're just sitting there going, oh, I, I, I don't feel right in my body. They have that urge, whether it's lighting up or having a drink, trying to soothe that internal state as well.
1: Absolutely. And how do I create this this feeling of release right? for myself? It doesn't even have to feel good, right? and, and it, it, sometimes it doesn't even right. feel good, but it does have a sense of relief. And we have to really differentiate those two things. Release is not always feeling good or comfortable. At least this horrible feeling I had is not there anymore. This terrifically awful thought or image or urge that I was experiencing has temporarily left my brain. And there's relief from that. I still feel maybe shame and guilt that I even had it at all, but at least it's temporarily gone. And oh, now that I've talked about it, oh, crap, it's coming back again. Kind of like I always keep my little pink elephant right here on my desk. He's always with me at all times. The moment you try not to think of him that you're missing at it.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's, again, it's striking the similarities. And I mean, so many people, OCD sufferers will be amongst the first and OCD related disorder sufferers will be amongst the first to tell you it's not even about feeling good. Sometimes it feels terrible, but the idea of not doing it feels even more terrible. Yeah. yeah.
1: I call many people 51 49ers, meaning 49% of me wants to change, but 51% of me is stuck doing the same thing because it's too scary to change that 2%. I'd like to make you a 49 51 where only 49% of me wants to stay the same and 51% of me wants to change. So sometimes that therapy is just moving that 2%. But it, you're so right at what you said, because I've stood next to people who are washing their hands and scalding hot water, crying and telling me how painful it is. But that pain is just a little less than the obsession. Right. And therefore, even though this sucks, this other thing sucks just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that's the thing that's going to get all the attention and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to relieve that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because as you were talking and I have this as a note for later, but I was reading through, I went on a little bit of a deep dive through like Al-Anon literature and and Narnon and these different support groups for substance Mm -hmm. use or drug use when you have a loved one suffering from an addiction. And some of the reasons why people haven't gotten started and, you know, should I get started? This was the same exact conversation on Al-Anon website, again, because it's such striking similarity. Like, yes, I could do something different, but what might happen if I go to do something different? Will they be unsafe? And the idea of what if that doesn't work? This isn't great, but it's what we're used to and even this bad outcome feels better than trying something new that might also not work. And so it was talking through this language as I was looking at it. And I was just like, man, it's almost like the community we've created here is like an OCD anon in a way because we are the Hmm. support community around OCD. And there are just so many of those similarities where people are getting together and learning about, gosh, this is really hard, but it's really impacting me. It's impacting my loved one. And so, yeah, so it's a really important topic. One of the things that was really interesting, so I was looking through the handouts that your panel presented at this last conference, and I was looking at the stats with vets. I think a lot of times vets, people think of like PTSD, obviously there is a lot of trauma for the men, women, all the people that courageously step into service. And not just here, we have an international audience, but certainly we have some unique circumstances that can pop up for veterans. But I found it really interesting, not just looking at substance use disorder, but looking as we're starting to look at the overlap and the prevalence, even with OCD. It was very interesting going through the research that you all presented. And also a lot of really good research on body dysmorphic disorder, which is an OCD related disorder for anybody that's newer to the podcast, where both the phenomenon of I use because I have this or I have this and it's made this thing worse. Like there's somewhat of that reciprocal effect that these two do not play well together, but they're besties in the way that they present. So can you speak a little more to some of the research that you guys were sharing and some of the findings of how we're seeing that overlap coming together more than just even the observations that we were discussing?
1: Yeah. So let's talk about veterans a little bit. Here's what you will see there. Why would OCD affect veterans? Well, Mm -hmm. when you have some kind of traumatic experience, OCD being the opportunistic jerk of a disorder that it is. Right. Says, oh, you've had something bad happen. Well, guess what? I can help you make sure that never ever happens again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And guess how we're going to do that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're going to do compulsions. Mm-hmm. So compulsions will prevent this thing from ever happening again. Right. Well, this is why you see almost a third of veterans with PTSD developing OCD.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what is one of the hallmark ways that people with PTSD deal with? all the intrusive recollections, images, and how do they avoid things? Because that's a highlight of PTSD too. Substance use mm-hmm. is very, very common. And it's not just veterans, of course. It's very common among many people who have experienced some kind of traumatic thing in their life that, again, you turn off the memory or the recall of the, the flashbacks. And, and I've even seen people manipulate their symptoms with substances who have trauma. So... I've met people who use cocaine Mm -hmm. to stay awake because the nightmares are horrible. Yeah. And I've met other people who use tons of marijuana and alcohol. So they sleep all the time because the flashbacks when they're awake are so horrible. Right. So my compassion, and I don't just say passion, my compassion for, for people who experience this is to try to figure out, it's not like you wanted to become addicted to this. It's serving some kind of purpose for you, or at least it did. And now it's a monster of its own, right? Because the addiction in and of itself is the issue. And and you're maintaining that because the withdrawal is so difficult. But what was the purpose of this developing? How did this experiment begin? What were you trying to overcome? And can we teach you other ways to deal with that than substances? And can we allow for, again, exposure response prevention therapy? which yes, we use for OCD, but Mm -hmm. we can use for anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. and we can use behavioral activation based ERP for depression Mm -hmm. and prolonged exposure for trauma. And I'd contend that we use ERP for drugs and alcohol too, because at the center that I had, we even had a virtual reality component to the work we were doing. And I could bring people into a virtual bar and serve a virtual drink to them with the smell machine, blowing the smell of the drink at them. And them literally shaking and sweating and saying, I thought I was ready. I might need a few more days here.
0: Wow. That is, that is quite an immersive exposure. Look it was. Look at the technology. Oh. Wow.
1: Yeah. Now, fun story. When I started oh. at Alexian Brothers, where I did the bulk of my work until I was at NoCD. Mm-hmm. But when I started at Alexian Brothers, one of the first talks I did was to the substance use monthly forum. They had, and they had about 150 Clinicians that would come and get their CEs. And so I was talking about ERP and treatment for anxiety. And and then I talked about what I think was missing in the substance use field was ERP that we told people just to stay abstinent, abstinent of everything and to stay away from anything that was acute. But we live in a world where alcohol is very prevalent and there are ads on billboards and there are ads on television and family parties have alcohol. And should you? isolate for the rest of your life away from all of those things so that you are never cued by something? Mm -hmm. Or should you be cued and learn how to handle a cue so that you can still go to a nice restaurant? And even though somebody's just popped open a lovely bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon at the table next to you, and maybe even the smell of it wafts over to you, that Mm -hmm. you know that even though you're smelling it and there may be an urge or a craving doesn't mean you have to give into it and that you can handle it. Yeah. Now, Almost 20 or 15 years ago, when I was doing this there, they wanted me fired. They thought that this was, this was sacrilege. And how dare I even say that? And that 12 years later, I have a virtual reality machine where I'm taking people with addictions and I'm putting them through VR. So it was beautiful to see how far the field had come mm-hmm. in just over a decade. And you're seeing exposure response, prevention therapy used in other areas too, eating disorders uh, as now a large component of it as well. So when we stop thinking that people are totally fragile, right, Mm -hmm. and that their brains are about to break, and when we allow for the fact that, no, we're a lot tougher than anyone gives ourselves credit for, Mm -hmm. and that we can handle difficult things, and when we gradually expose people to those things and show them that they can handle it, people build up resilience better than we ever thought possible. So my hope for anybody going through treatment for addiction, treatment for OCD is that we allow you to learn that you can actually handle living in the world better than you've ever given yourself credit for. And that doing these immediately gratifying things to try to make it through day by day isn't the only way to get through life. There are other ways to do it too.
0: Yeah, I mean, you make a really excellent point. Because if you think about it, when someone's coming in, whether it's for substance use disorder or OCD, Often, they've been living with it for many years, if not decades. One of the more recent statistics that I believe no CD has shared even, and I want to say IOCDF as well, is an average of 14 to 17 years, I think it is. From the onset of symptoms, onset to actually getting a diagnosis or starting treatment for OCD. Substance use certainly can be a slow boil. It's you're not ending up in a substance use program three weeks into having a couple more drinks than you feel like you should, and so it is for both. You are such a tough cookie that you have survived in this hell for sometimes decades. You, if anybody, if my money's on somebody, it's on you. You're a tough cookie, right? Mm -hmm. But you make a really good point too with eating disorder. I talked with Dr. Jenna DeLossi last season. And we were discussing because eating disorders like addiction in some of the functionality of it. And so we do have research showing that E.D. responds well to that. In fact, she said they really don't have a lot of consensus, I guess, in the eating disorder world. But we know exposure therapy works. Yes. And we know that there is a disorder stress tolerance issue, we know there is some fear around sitting with the anxiety for folks with a myriad of different types of eating disorders, as we do with substance use disorder, as we certainly know is true with OCD as well. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. You start saying like, oh, oh, these share more characteristics than are different, which is why we have some good research outcomes for eating disorder and... Right. Yeah, coming out of residentials, I think Rogers treats both, maybe McLean. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Do you know when the latest research, if it's been within the last 10 years, if they're continually updating that research?
1: There's not a lot on OCD and substance use. And we've even said in when we do our talks at the conference, if anyone wants to uh, find a little niche for their career, you cut make this yeah. your niche. You really could. dessert
0: topic. Who wants yeah, it? Right. Who
1: needs a dissertation? Because right. we've got an idea. We're, yeah. You know,
0: uh, yeah. And I've been thinking about that too. I'm going to talk about this later when we talk about clinicians. But even looking through the DSM 5, I was really surprised to see the lack of understanding when it comes to the overriding substance use and addictive disorders, and specifically OCD and OCD related disorders. So I'll get to that. Mm-hmm. In a minute. But what I'm curious about, I actually was talking with a psychiatrist this morning about OCD, and he said, I don't know what documentary, but he was like, I was watching this documentary, and it was about a bunch of patients in France, and a lot of people in this inpatient unit on this documentary had OCD. And I thought, I don't mm-hmm. know if I've really ever seen OCD in our inpatient unit, which I'm going, Oh, you've seen it. You've seen yeah. it. You just aren't aware. But What do you think it is about OCD? Because I came into OCD treatment after already working in the field for over 20 years, and I didn't know it. It was a a slide in a psychopharm class years ago. And so this is something that a lot of people struggle with, and it goes by other names. It goes by anxiety. It goes by oh, I don't know. I'm just distressed about this relationship. Isn't that what dating is? Isn't that what relationship is? There can be so many different shades and subtypes than OCD. And so what do you think is the disconnect between the broader mental health community understanding OCD?
1: I could talk a lot about this, actually. So (laughs) let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. One time I remember watching the news during COVID Mm -hmm. and all the newscasters were in one of the newscasters' backyard. They were doing it live from outside so they could be appropriately distanced from each other. And they were all mic'd up, but they were all 10 feet apart and everything. And one of the newscasters looked to the other one and said, wouldn't it be great if we all just had a little OCD right now as a way to get through? And and I thought this, would we ever go to, and I'm going to apologize for this statement I'm going to make right here, know that it is all just for example. What if we went to a, Group of people who were struggling with weight issues and said, "Have all of you considered a little anorexia?" Mm-hmm. I, I'd be shot at, right? I, I my license would be gone if I made that claim mm-hmm. anywhere
0: mm-hmm.
1: as a suggestion for how to lose weight. Mm-hmm. So why would we suggest the development of a serious mental health disorder as a way to help you get through a difficult time? Right. And I blame this a lot on OCD's portrayal in media, which is it's only straightening things and it's going back and checking things and it's washing your hands a lot. And somehow OCD became the thing that was the butt of jokes. Right. You know, there's beautiful movies out there about mental health issues. Look at Awaken. I think it was Robin Williams was yeah. there, in there. and. And But then you have other movies where the main character has OCD and they're a comedy.
0: Right. It's or, slapstick almost. Yeah.
1: Or OCD's helpful. Like, oh, you want to solve a crime. Well, look, OCD helps you to solve crime or things of that nature in another show. Right. So because of that, people have this notion that OCD can actually be good and helpful. And it's only these couple of areas where you check the lockbox and you put your silverware straight and you make sure you clean and you then wipe down the salt shaker at the restaurant and all that kind of Right. And no one then knows that OCD is, what if I were to throw my child down the stairs? So then a doctor hears that, who's not educated about it and thinks, oh, this person really does want to kill their child. So let's take the child away from them and let's put them on an inpatient unit because they are psychotic. Right. And they are a danger to society and we need to lock them up until this goes away or we can. ECT this thought out of them or we can overly drug them until they've been neutralized uh, in some way.
0: Sometimes with a drug that as they stay on it for a certain amount of time only increases some of that OCD symptomology like SGA's second generation antipsychotics can be very fickle Mm. like that. So, yeah, it is it's a real problem. Which, to that end, I will say, NoCD. So you work for NoCD. And (laughs) online, I've loved the campaigns. I don't know really where I'm getting targeted (laughs) from it. Maybe it's during, like, watching IOCDF or going back and watching videos. But you guys partnered with Marie Bamford, who was just this year's keynote. And I love the information campaign of the nice little nursery music. And some people think it's organizing your baby clothes when really it's like, what if I accidentally snapped their neck? Now, that sounds terrifying. And the OCD sufferer will be the very first to tell you, yes, it is. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. That's OCD. OCD isn't the cute, I like to color coordinate things. That's called having a preference that you like Mm -hmm. to color coordinate. We're happy for you and your preferences. That's not what OCD is.
1: Not interfering in your life there, right? Right, Mm -hmm. right.
0: Or even if it does, I think sometimes people even are thinking more of an OCPD manifestation where it's like, It's, it's distressing because I feel it's important, but I don't have enough time in the day and everything's important. There can be different aspects of it, but still, we have a lot of misrepresentations of mental health in the media and societally, yes. though. So it's like, why has this one gotten so so off? I don't know.
1: You know, doing this for now twenty four years, it's always interesting to me, and I I almost script out every conversation I have in the situation now because. The moment somebody says, what do you do? And you reply, well, I'm the chief clinical officer for the largest teletherapy company in the world for obsessive compulsive disorder. Guess what everybody says to me right after I say that?
0: Oh, but isn't everybody a little bit OCD?
1: Yep. Or I have a little OCD. It's one of those things. And so I always take the time to very nicely educate people on the idea that you don't have a little bit Mm -hmm. of of OCD. You have a personality quirkiness that we all have. Just because you like to check the garage door twice to make sure it's locked doesn't mean that you have OCD. Right. Or or that, like you said, you like to color coordinate your clothes. Okay, great. So your, your hangers match whatever color shirt is hanging on them. Wonderful. Good on you, right? That probably takes an extra maybe five or 10 minutes of your day once a week when you do laundry. Right. Versus something that's at least an hour of your day or so significantly impacting your life that you're not going to work or school or having the relationships in your life that you would want to have because whatever the OCD is telling you has become the most important thing in the world. Yeah. And that to me, that the message has gone out that either OCD could be helpful to you or that it's really not a big deal is why so many people suffer from it because I've had patients who have said to me, I've been told by other doctors, I can't have OCD because my house is messy or I'm not washing my hands all the time. So I can't have OCD because everybody with OCD washes their hands all the time. Well, no, no, they don't.
0: Right. Who has time to wash their hands when you're so worried you married the wrong person?
1: Exactly. Right.
0: The thing, too, and I say that so for a newer family listening, I say that because there can be relationship OCD, there can be these questions that. Really, there can be a lot of strong mental compulsions. And you might just think, that's the way I've always thought. Yeah, it's the way you've always thought. Yes, you
1: always had OCD. Right, you know,
0: exactly, because really. your brain's braining, so it's still doing that. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that checks. That brains keep
1: braining. They me
0: <laughs> I say it all the time when people are like, but why is that happening? I'm like, well, I mean, why is our brain braining? Because it brains, yep. that's, that's, that's what it does. That's
1: how OCD works. Right. Here's the thing. I don't know anything much more predictable in the world than OCD. Mm -hmm. And so I I liken it to this idea that when we're doing treatment for OCD, I want you to think of it like a horror film. If you see the same horror film 40 times, you're not going to be scared this time when the guy pops out behind the tree. Right. And OCD does the same thing. But there's this caveat in OCD that's different than a horror film, which is getting you to believe, ah, but what if this is the time that the thing actually does happen? So- that what if experience in OCD is just so powerful and so strong and unfortunately so believable to people who have OCD that it seems to get them every single time. Yeah. You know, I describe it, it's like Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football. Did Charlie Brown ever kick the football when mm-hmm. Lucy held the football? Absolutely <laughs> not. And was Charlie Brown driven every time Lucy put the football down to try to kick the football? Mm-hmm. Absolutely and that's what OCD is like. OCD's is holding the football and say, this is the time you're going to get it just right this time. Everything's going to be great. And then I'm going to leave forever because you'll have finally satisfied everything for me. Yeah. And you go and you run and you try to kick the football and OCD goes, oh, no, no, not this time. I love and that. And you go flying through the air <laughs> and you never shake <laughs> the foot.
0: Yeah. Or even if in with this metaphorical football, if you kick it, you can still kick it the wrong way. You can kick it not far enough. And because what did you miss? Well, you might have been kicking it. Did I kick Mm -hmm. it? And I forgot. I mean, maybe I did
1: kick it, but I just forgot.
0: Oh, no. Right. And it's cruel. It's a cruel disorder. You actually have a quote. I'm going to pull it up. On the NoCD website, and I really thought this is such a a good way of saying it. It says, quote, when we help people with OCD, we also help their families get their relative back, their friends get Mm. their friend back, their schools get a student back, their jobs Mm. get an employee back, and their communities get a citizen back from the most selfish disorder in the world, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is so true. It is such a selfish disorder and it is so hard to separate for the person very absorbed into that intrusive fear it is so hard for that person to separate like but what if it's not right like what if it is this thing the stakes are too high it's too dire and it's really a crippling disorder and so i similarly usually have a spiel that i say to people Mm -hmm. in terms of like but everyone a little No, Mm -hmm. but it is an opportunity to educate. And I'm hopeful that the more conversations we get to have, you have to (laughs) hope that will that will spread in a grassroots way and help change thoughts a little bit.
1: And you have to say that so nicely, too, because OCD is going to interpret that and say, oh, see, people think you're selfish. No, no, OCD. You're the selfish jerk, not the person who has you in their brain. It's you. Right. You're the thing. So. Right. I tell everyone, I really like you, but I sure hate your OCD. And I'm going to treat it like the jerk that it is because it needs to go. And there's going to be times, and you tell me if you feel this way ever, there's going to be times you're going to feel like, was he saying that about me? And I'm going to tell you the answer is I'm talking to your OCD in those situations, right? Yeah. But OCD is always going to turn around in your brain and go, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, why would you want me to go away? I'm, I'm here to help you if if I'm gone, look at all the horrible things that could happen. I mean, you stop doing compulsions and man, poop is going to hit some fans mm-hmm. and fly everywhere. And I've I am what has kept you safe and secure and alive all these years. How could you ever get rid of it? Right. And that's the gaslighting of OCD. And right. it gets you to believe stuff. And in some ways, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. You know, yeah. After a while, you're like, oh, thank you, OCD. Because, boy, if you weren't here, that would have been horrible. Good thing you were around. And I really appreciate everything you've done for
0: it's interesting because in my fun off time, I find it interesting to like learn about cults and <laughs> things. I have clients that have escaped from that cult think, that group think mentality. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. There is an odd sense of comfort. Even I would say, you know, when, when you look at some abusive relationships, this doesn't condone abuse by any means, but knowing what to expect, having that predictability, even if it's Hard, even if it's painful, people start to lean into that and go, Oh, well, maybe that's going to lean me towards some certainty here. And I'd rather, even if a bad thing's going to happen, know it's going to happen than be caught off guard. And so, yeah, that Stockholm syndrome, or whether we're talking kind of about that cult mentality, I mean, we can get stuck in that and be imprisoned in our own heads here around that kind of thinking. And so, I, I hear this, I'm sure you do. Too. I wouldn't that this person has OCD, you don't act like you have OCD because they're looking for this caricature that you were describing before. But a lot of people are suffering with such intrusive thoughts, intrusive fears, intrusive images that they were like, I don't want to tell somebody that I had that thought because, like you said, is CPS going to come take my kids away? The last thing I ever want to do is hurt my kids, but I'm terrified that what if I do? And then sometimes we see that happen. We look across our BIPOC community and some of the very real event issues they have to deal with still with the intersection of how they're treated. Are they going to come in and just be like, yeah, I'm afraid that I might kill somebody. Let's lock this person up. Can we get please
1: to lock this person up, please? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, exactly. That's what... mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: Stand yep. here. We you got it. Just one sec.
1: We'll help you. Nice slippers Do you wear, by the way. <laughs> right. You
0: know? Right. And that's a very real fear. And 100%. So... And, and so it's a tricky part to this treatment, too, because going out and saying that, it takes so much courage to speak up even in your own community, in your own home yes. sometimes, let alone what's going to happen if I say that to my therapist. They have, Absolutely. I don't know. I signed a consent at the beginning of yeah. this if, if I'm mm. in danger, if I'm going to be in danger to somebody else. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, really tough. So, when we think about substance use and we can think of this altered state of thinking where there can be a lot of these distressing thoughts and fears, and we can put some gasoline on this fire, especially if OCD was already a brew there. But even if it wasn't, we can see some of the side effects of the substance folks are using, or more of that symptomology coming out. Can we talk about how oCD And really substance use disorder as well, how that affects that family system and some of the common traps. If we think about OCD being Lucy yanking that football, some of the common traps that these two disorders share when it comes to how it affects the family and how it affects relationships.
1: Yeah, I mean, so many families are walking on eggshells trying not to create any stressors at all in the home. Mm-hmm. And then they become more and more limited in their life too. I remember getting a call one time from a mom who said, we're controlled by the OCD. We can only use one bathroom. When we come in the house, we have to strip down two robes. When we come in the garage mm-hmm. and change clothes in this one area and mm-hmm. everything has to be laundered and, and my kid uses this bathroom only, and we're not allowed to have friends come over or family and everything. And I said, so your kid's in charge of your household then? And the mom said, no, no. I mean, it's my house. I like it. And I said, okay, well then just stop doing all of those things. And she paused for a moment, she said, damn it, it's in charge of my household. <laughs> and then I corrected a little bit more. I said, well, I'm going to make that even a more precise statement. Your kid's OCD is in charge. Of right or your kids, if in another instance, your kid's substance is on there because everyone's worried about the person and let's not cause them stress. We don't want to give them more reasons to use or things of that nature. So how, how very, very difficult all of that becomes. And then you get accommodations, right? So now you have families who are like, well, I will promise you that you'll be fine or okay, or I'll do these things for you so that you don't have to do compulsions. You know, I notice It takes you hours long after you go to the bathroom to wash your hands. Why don't you put these gloves on when you go to the bathroom? And after a while, now you have to wear three sets of gloves. When you go to the bathroom, you still wash your hands for six hours. So what might've helped right at the beginning has added to the whole experience and made it more difficult. Or, hey, I'll go buy you your drugs so that you don't have to go out and maybe go into really bad neighborhoods and get murdered and prostitute yourself or something of that nature. I'm going to pay for all of that stuff. And you tell me. Then when you're ready to go to rehab, well, sometimes we got to do interventions in those situations, right? And sometimes we just got to be like, listen, this detox is going to be really uncomfortable, but it's going to be the best thing for you as well too. So yeah, a lot of families just feel like they've been hit by a train, you know, and they don't know what to do. And the things that they try because they seem on the face validity of them to be the best things to do, like promise people with OCD they'll be fine or okay. And those all turn out to be things that actually make, it over time, probably worse than better. And then they have the guilt about maybe we should have done that, but you didn't know that you weren't supposed to do that. You did what you thought you were supposed to do because it was going to help in the moment. And it did help in the moment. Unfortunately, the hidden evil in all of this is that it also made it worse in the long term. And nobody talks about that. Nobody would know that. And so that's where our education has to come in with people about. What do you want? Do you want immediate relief from an uncomfortable situation right now or do you want to learn how to handle things in the long term? And unfortunately it's hard to do both of those at the same time. You're really going for one or the other.
0: Right. Yeah, a word I will often substitute for compulsions especially when I'm doing some of the psychoed in the beginning of treatment with families, I will say safety behaviors and you think about the function, Amen. right? Mm-hmm the functionality mm-hmm. both in substance use whether you're like i don't know because you know there's fentanyl and a bunch of this stuff and what if they're like medically mm-hmm. dead and so no while well, i would never that's how
1: riley died in riley's wish that's it was fun yeah
0: mm-hmm. and so you might go well i don't want them on it but if they're gonna get it somehow then i'm gonna make sure they're getting mm-hmm. something that's not going to quote right. unquote hurt them more even though i know this mm-hmm. is hurting them because i'm terrified they're gonna die we look at different safety behaviors you use the one with the gloves that's a great example where you come by it honestly and it's one of those things it's an opportunity for us to say to family members you know what thank you for loving your person so much because this came out of love and concern and you can still love and have concern for them we're just gonna shift the script here so that ocd isn't the one stealing that love and concern that you're trying to give to your loved person. Because it can be so hard for families kicking themselves, going, I didn't know, I didn't know. And in the substance use realm, a word that has really popped up over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, maybe even longer, is this idea of codependency. When we think of codependency, and it really strongly aligns with what we could describe also as accommodation, I think codependency is something that mainstream mental health has at least a better working understanding of, even if they're still missing the point on OCD at large. But for the broader population coming into this may be very new and going, well, I know I don't want my person with an alcohol addiction to be codependent on me and me on them, but we have this codependent relationship. Can we help shed some light? Maybe where would you differentiate family accommodation from codependency or they kind of one in the same, just different faces?
1: I think it's on a continuum, right? I mean, it's probably going to start as some small accommodations and get to a point where I'm an integral part of this problem now. And I'm so in the weeds of it, I don't even know what to do anymore. And sometimes that's when families will call for an interventionist, say, to come in because they just don't know how to handle the experience anymore. I've sat in on a few of these over time with people and they're not fun, right? They're very difficult conversations to have. And, and this is too, especially in the area of kids, I have to warn families before your kid, no matter how old they are, they could be 50, right? (laughs) Whatever, but your kid is potentially going to call you names and say things to you in this next hour that you've never heard before Mm -hmm. and that you will be shocked at Mm -hmm. and just recognize again. That is the scared part of their OCD or that addiction that is screaming, saying, I can't live without this. Do everything that you possibly can to convince these people to keep on doing what they're doing. And we're here to say, we just don't believe. Right. So call us names, threaten us, whatever, that's fine. We don't believe you. Right. And our job is to show you that the belief, the lie that you've fallen for from OCD doesn't have to be believed in.
0: Yeah. Another thing that can pop up pretty easily there or even as a threat along the way if someone tries to remove their safety behavior or their accommodation Is that threat of I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to kill myself. If you don't do this, there's no point in living. It's going to be your fault. And understandably, that brings a good amount of distress. If this is your child, this is your partner, this is your dad, that drives fear in you. And so we can see that co-occurring distress. And again, nobody wants to sit there and go, well, what if they're joking? What if they're faking it? Because. Yep. the stakes feel so high that's why when we get to that point where this is the bargaining chip or this is the conversation piece so important to have a mental health person or a medical health person if you don't know where to yes. go hospital 911 your country's yep. emergency code do it yep um uh, yep. because you're right it is so high but yep. that's not you you don't have a magic wand that can keep this if this is really the place where someone is at and the level of fear that they're in Then, yes, bring in a team and say, You're right. You're so important that, well, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to also get you help because I don't want you gone and really wrap around the support there. But yeah, it can be very, very challenging to hear yourself be called hated, to be called names for someone to threaten their own life if you don't continue to aid the addiction or aid OCD's objective here and the agenda that has to be followed. And that's hard.
1: Absolutely. I let people know that we're going to take their statement seriously. So if they say, if you do this, I'm going to do this. And if that's harm self or others, then we do have to call in uh, extra help in that situation. Yeah. Versus an OCD. What if I were to harm myself? Totally different thing, right? Totally different interventions and everything there versus I'm going to, then, then we're in a different, we're in a different world, right?
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you made that distinction, too, because there is a difference of I'm afraid I could because I had a thought or an image or an impulse or an impulsive urge. Right. Right. And in fact, I'm I'm working with our local IEP right now, just setting up a lunch and learn for their little C sessions to go, hey, Mm -hmm. what is harm OCD? Right. Because we see that a lot when people are hospitalized. And so it's different if someone's going. Hey, I'm like so desperate to have the drink. I'm so desperate for staying here and not leaving because it's contaminated or whatever the situation is that I'm going to hurt myself. That's very different than what if I could and I'm feeling distressed about that.
1: Very different things.
0: Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, here's the good news. You don't have to know how to deal with the stakes are high. Let's get them to somebody that does know how to deal with those high stakes and keep your person safe. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point. So, within the addiction community, within the substance use community, well, there's a couple things actually. You guys had a couple questions that I thought were really, really helpful. And this is also on, it looks like the OCD substance use disorder special interest group site. But it was a couple different questions that you could add in when you're doing your clinical interview or your intake paperwork, in addition to whether you're using your Y-Box or your box, to be able to assess for whether you are a substance abuse counselor or not. You can at least refer to somebody that knows a bit more about this. And this is a fantastic set of questions.
1: Yeah. And while you're pulling them up, let me just say that there is absolutely no shame in being a therapist who doesn't specialize in something to bring someone into the situation who does. Yes, Nothing annoys me more in the field when you go onto a certain website and people list all of their specialties and they list 75 different things. I'm just like, what a lie that is. You cannot specialize in that many things. That is just garbage. And so Know what you know how to do and pull in the people who know what they know how to do when you need them.
0: Yes, that is such a great point. I mean, I got into OCD. My little joke, as it were, is this client was struggling with OCD so much that even I couldn't miss it because I didn't know what I was looking at. And as I realized, like I found the Y box online, I'm thinking this is the thing I found IOCD up. And I said to them, like, I don't know how to treat this. This is new. I do get the sense that it needs to be treated with exposure and response prevention. I think we need to refer you to someone that knows how to do it, because I think it's really important that this gets the right treatment. At the time, with the COVID waiting list and all the things, they were like, hey, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. So I don't care (laughs) if you know it or not. Let's learn it. I am on a waiting list for another year and I can't survive. And so we started learning it together. And that's when I had that aha moment of like, wow, I don't know anything about this. Now, thanks to the generosity of OCD Midwest, which you used to be the president of.
1: I I was. You were.
0: I was offered an opportunity to get BTTI training. That's the Behavioral Therapy Training Institute. But still, even completing a BTTI, it takes more. It takes active involvement and continued learning, continued practice to continue to learn. And I hope I always am at a place where I'm like, there's more to learn. I don't know it all.
1: I'm still learning. 24 years in, you know, I'm still learning. There's still things people say to me. It's like, oh, well, that's a That's a new spin on OCD. I like that one. Let's let's explore that a little bit. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it is really important. And you guys had these really great suggestions of things that you can add if you're assessing somebody in just your run of the mill, run of the mill OCD eval, (laughs) uh, (laughs) whatever that whatever your agency or private practice paperwork looks like. But these questions, how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medication for non-medical reasons? I thought that was Mm -hmm. an excellent question. In the last year, have you ever drunk or used drugs more than you meant to? And you know people are going to not necessarily give you the whole story there, Mm -hmm. but often they're going to read on that one. And have you felt you wanted or needed to cut down on your drinking or drug use in the last year? And so... Just even those simple questions, one of the points you guys made was, if it's yes to any of those, even if you don't know how to do it. Get that person connected to someone that can do a substance use history to go through, Correct. go through an evaluation. And best case scenario, I tell people all the time, best case scenario is you wasted time. You went in and you know what? It's not a big deal. Great. Yep. And best case scenario is you go in and you find out It was either a waste of time or it's not, but at least, you know, knowledge is power. We can move forward knowing the things that we know now. And so getting people referred to the people that know how to do those kind of evaluations, whether you're a therapist that's like, I think I'm running into OCD and I don't know crap about it. Find an OCD specialist. The community here is so incredibly generous. Just like Patrick taking the time, one of our lead experts here in the U.S., and he is so gracious in sharing and shedding some more light on this and giving us all permission to still be learning even he's still learning so Mm -hmm. i think that yeah it's such an excellent point if you don't know okay great so your brain's not going to know everything join the crowd and find someone that does know how just know how to be able to start noticing be curious and get them to somebody that knows how to ask and assess for those questions i think that's a really great point so I like that. And one of the things I was thinking, because I feel like substance abuse counselors and depending on the state, depending on the country, what suggestions would you have for then from our side, bridging with substance use programs to help increase information about when would an OCD screening perhaps be appropriate? Because you are speaking to this overlap that is so common with yes. the symptom presentation and so is there a way that we could also bridge with substance use providers or rehab facilities and bridge the gap here?
1: I believe in that same presentation you were just reading those questions from. If you go to the next slide, there's something you might find interesting
0: there. Ooh, look at that. <laughs> so Why don't you
1: a- tell the audience what
0: that is? <laughs> yes, you're right. I totally missed that. These are great. These are great too. Do you have thoughts that make you anxious that you cannot get rid of no matter how hard you try? Now, would you distinguish this between thoughts about having another drink from because I feel like you're going to have those thoughts around it when you have an addiction or whatever your drug of choice is?
1: Yeah, although I I found most of the people that I've worked with in the substance abuse community would describe, do you have urges or cravings instead of thoughts about the drink? Oh, Okay, they would really viscerally experience that thing instead of just usually thinking.
0: Okay, that's a good distinction.
1: Not to say that they wouldn't, but that's more typical.
0: Right, but they're going to think about it and language matters. We know language matters. And so having just even that nuance in language can help. That's why
1: even with obsessions, I always say thoughts, images, and urges. Because if we just say OCD thoughts, people might think that if they have an image of something, that that's not OCD, but it is.
0: Yeah. Or even sounds sometimes. Sounds that are very distressing. Uh, It's more than just thoughts, for sure. Mm -hmm. Another question, do you keep things extremely clean or wash your hands frequently? You also made the distinction that there is a stereotype that contamination-based OCD is what OCD Mm -hmm. is. It's the tip of the iceberg, but it is a part of the iceberg, so we can acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's speaking to that piece. And do you check things in excess? Yeah. Cause I feel like whether I'm thinking about it with eating disorder too and with substance use, there are so many different rituals. There are so many different patterns of behavior. Certainly, we see that show up in OCD as well, that become a whole part of the process. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think checking things in excess is a great question. So, the, the point, y'all, is, and for anybody that's listening that maybe is treating substance abuse or has a loved one that is getting substance abuse treatment, looking for these questions or even talking with your loved one or if you're like, no, I know for sure that's happening, it may be worth finding an yeah. OCD provider that can do a further evaluation. IOCDF has a great provider finder if you're looking and that's an international base. You can That's send no CD service, to all 50 states now and so correct. international. I've... UK,
1: Canada and Australia as well.
0: Okay. And so that is broadening. But even if you are in some countries that are not included in that list, IOCDF is a great resource to go and check out.
1: And you could still reach out to us at NoCD too. We might have some things we could still do to help.
0: Yeah, to that end as well, NoCD has a presence on social media. For anybody that is sitting there going like, I need good, credible resources that I want to learn more about. NoCD, whether you are a pain therapy client or not, has a number i see your name all the time patrick coming up on live stream tonight q a right on the no cd app they have yep. ways to be able to track exposures you say you've got jonathan grayson's book, freedom from ocd and you're like i don't know i'm doing this yeah i always 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 suggest not because you're not strong but because ocd's that sneaky pairing mm-hmm. with a service provider but if you're like i'm stuck in this remote area or my insurance isn't covering it i don't have the funds i'm in this country i'm lost like patrick saying, still you can reach out to no cd but also you can sign up for the app and still get i believe you still have access to that yeah. community you can use
1: therapy tools in the community Absolutely. Yeah. for support yeah. and things like that mm-hmm.
0: right and then youtube i want to say will have different things you guys are involved with IOCDF and partnering and so that whether we're looking at lunch and learns or um, roundtables there's a lot of really good resources out there so just wanted to shout that out for anybody that is looking so those are really helpful when we're thinking about this from a family perspective and relationship perspective I think another big piece to hit and I try to hit in treatment is also giving yourself some grace whether you're the sufferer or whether you're the family member. This has been holding you hostage for how long? Days, weeks, years, usually decades, right? Mm-hmm. And so some grace, you have been hanging on and you are a tough cookie, but it's okay. We, we can't know what we can't know. And even once we know, I'm sure you have these experiences as well. But I know in my process of learning and even facilitating ERP, I can go, well, that didn't work. Well, that was a mistake. And we learn together. The CD is Mm -hmm. sneaky. It's Mm -hmm. sneaky. And so we learn together. And so there is a huge component, I think, is really important of giving ourselves grace. One of the things you guys talked about in the presentation, too, and we've talked a little bit on the podcast about ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy. We speak from a, really in this community, in really embracing value-driven living, right? We want to live to our values, not to what OCD is going to say we need to do to survive, maybe. But also you guys talked about this in terms of, I thought it was really interesting. You guys talked about it. There was a mention of experiential avoidance that sometimes caretakers will have. And there were some studies around even how ACT has been helpful For the support community in going, how can I live to the value of loving my person, not giving in to OCD's bullying demands, right? and have some compassion on myself? And so can you speak a little bit to, I thought that was a really interesting study. Sure.
1: I'll just, I'll give an example here. Yeah. All right, everyone. Imagine your niece or nephew are in a detox unit Mm -hmm. and you go to visit them. And they say, Aunt, Uncle so so. I know there's a liquor store down the street. Could you just go over there, buy a couple of those little airplane bottles of vodka, sneak it in here and get it to me? Because I am going through hell right now. now. I feel like I'm dying. I'm sweating. My stomach hurts. I, I have a fever. I have the chills. My head is, feels like it's going to explode. I'm throwing up. I have diarrhea. Every muscle in my body hurts. And I feel like I'm going to die could you please just sneak some vodka in here? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Would you do that? Or would you say to them, as much as I know that that would help you right now, I also know that that will keep you addicted. And the doctors are here to help you overcome that addiction at the moment so that you can learn how to live life without being addicted. Mm -hmm. And if you would go with the second answer of, no, I'm not going to do it versus, yes, let me go do it. What you are basically saying is, I know you're suffering now, and that's what you need to do in order to be better. Well, let me ask everyone then this question. Why is it okay to suffer physically now in order to be better later? But we've decided it's unacceptable to do that mentally. Hmm. And what if we also needed to do that mentally too? We needed to go through that experience of not getting the immediately gratifying relief that we want. And we needed to learn that we could handle that. And then once we learned that we could handle that, we wouldn't have to go through that experience anymore versus, oh, yeah, you're right. You can't handle that. Let me give you whatever you need right away so that you're not suffering. Mm-hmm. And when we've decided that, yes, people have the ability to handle difficult things mentally and learn from them, then people will start to get better.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. And what you're alluding to, too, is when we're talking about exposure and response prevention, which, again, is the treatment that is offered through NoCD throughout the United States and in the UK, as well as you said, Australia. And was it, well, Scotland's part of the UK? Kim. Canada, is that it really helps with understanding that this learning in the brain is actually getting reinforced by engagement in the compulsions, which is why we expose ourselves to the distress as unpleasant as it is, and Mm -hmm. we resist the compulsion. We have that prevention of that typical response, and it creates new learning in the brain. But it is not easy, and going through a detox isn't easy. Nope. Living in our brains, whether you have OCD or not, I'm going to be bold and say we all have things that are tough and have not been easy, OCD or not. Yeah. You could
1: say that. I always use very personal. I mean my, my wife died last year mm-hmm. and I have been very open about that with people and and talking about being a caregiver twenty four seven to my patients and then once I was done with work going to that and I had to make decisions in there as well, too, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, I chose not to use drinking as a way to cope with it, but I come from an Irish family and there's some stereotypes that are true in some of those areas that Mm -hmm. one, uh, there's a lot of people in my family who have had to stop drinking, right? There's also tough decisions to make. The hardest day of my life was when I called both families together and held a family meeting Mm -hmm. and said, I can't support Susan going through any more treatment because all I see is her getting worse as she does more treatments Mm -hmm. versus everyone else who would come over and who would see her just for a little bit of time and might notice that she could rally when they were there. But when they left, the hell I had to deal with after they were gone, right? Right. So, yeah, we all have crappy lots of life to deal with. Yeah. When you're offered something like GoCD that says, hey, I have a solution for you or, oh, hey, this substance will help numb that out for a while. It could be very tempting. Mm-hmm. And be it a genetic predisposition or just the right stressor at the right time and that unfortunate set of circumstances, any of us could fall toward doing one of those things and then find ourselves on a very slippery slope right. that, that we have to deal with. So yeah, what I found was I had to apply the advice I was giving to everyone else to myself. Otherwise, A, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't. And B, it was working for other people and it works for me too. Mm-hmm. But that was a conscious effort to be like, what would you tell your patients right now? Because you got to follow that because you wouldn't tell them what to do if you didn't think that it was going to be helpful.
0: Right. And often the safety behavior has the illusion of being the easier choice, right? It's like it's accessible, maybe it's within reach. We get into the mentality of like, oh, just this one time. But what we learn in OCD is it's no, actually now it's not even so much Always the obsession, but if I can't do the compulsion, we lose sight of the forest through the trees. Here, we right. can get so pulled in, so absorbed in. To if I can't do the compulsion, something bad is going to happen. Where this all started with, gosh, this is painful, and I, I'm seeing this pain, and I, I wish it wasn't so painful. Like I need something. i feels like I need something to be able to get oh, through yeah. this. Yeah. yeah.
1: I had those days. Believe me. I mean, I had those days. Yeah. And yeah. it wasn't that there wasn't a temptation right. to, to do or try certain things. I had a lot of medications in this house that I could have taken and various other things. that, And it all just became, if I do that thing now in the moment, will that be best for me in the long term? I always had to keep my eye on the long term because the other thing was the guilt. And again, as I always talk about the fact that OCD isn't just anxiety, it's shame and guilt and disgust and all those other things too. Right. One of the hardest things that I also had to deal with in all of this was, was guilt Mm -hmm. because there was a part of me that wanted to go golf, but how could I enjoy golfing if my wife is dying? And it took family and friends to come over and literally kick me out of the house and say, you need to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And again, that was a piece of advice that I had to realize that I'd been telling other people that I had to follow for myself, which is, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be any good for anybody else. So in order to make sure that I was helpful to other people, I had to take care of myself and I had to give myself breaks and I had to walk away from somebody who was dying to take care of me. And on the surface level, that can sound very selfish, but on an emotional level, it made me better for her when I was back.
0: Well, and you can't take care of someone if you're at zero. You can't, well, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: When the tank's empty, it's empty.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit of that cliche, but I think a lot of us in this field use it because it's spot on to the whole oxygen mask analogy. You go on oh, an airplane, totally, totally. and yeah. if you've ever traveled with a small child, first of all, you're my people. I get it. <laughs> Second of all, what are they going to say? They're going to come up, or a dependent adult, they're going to come up to you and say, please make sure you put on your own oxygen in the case of emergency. I don't yes. know. Them any of us that have heard this spiel have ever really had to pull on the oxygen mask. But in the case of emergency, you have to do this because guess what? If you pass out because you didn't get your oxygen mask on, you can't help little Timmy. You can't help exactly your partner. You can't help your wife. And so you have to, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's OCD, whether it's some other terminal illness or a medical illness or autoimmune thing, whatever, pick a thing. Like you have to, as much as it's going to feel hard and you're speaking to that guilt piece, it's real. You have to take care of yourself or you're not going to be there to take care of someone else.
1: And we're not necessarily the superheroes that we always think we're going to be in those situations. You know, I don't know if you remember. Do you know Payne Stewart? Does Mm -hmm. that sound familiar to you? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when, when his plane, uh, the whole ox thing happened and he died in the plane crash, mm-hmm. I just watched a special on it. And it was fascinating because mm-hmm. all the windows in the plane were frosted. So it somehow depressurized instantaneously. And if you didn't take a deep breath right before that, physiologically, you have four seconds of oxygen in your brain and 15 seconds of oxygen in your lungs, mm-hmm. which means at most you have 19 seconds to put that mask on,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm -hmm. And in that situation, there was a catastrophic failure in the plane and it changed the way that we do things in flights ever since that flight. And so nobody survived it because they realized there were some mistakes that had been made in how you do checklists and things like that. But I was just so captivated by that notion Yeah, yes, you can train yourself to be a deep sea diver and hold your breath for minutes at a time. But those are really, really trained people practice that for years and years to be able to do that. Those of us who are just normal average old people, Mm -hmm. 19 seconds.
0: Right. And when your brain is bathing in some cortisol because the stress level goes up, you can know all the right things. You could know 19 seconds and you could still be like, it's a challenge. It's also why you practice. It is why you practice as well. It's why you practice and maybe even do some VR around that with some scent machine. Well,
1: it's why we do ERP more than one time. You don't just do it one time and think, I got it. No, because... You are going to, in the future, sometimes, do you go back to the old way of doing it? Or do you go back to the way you practice BRP? Well, to make it more likely, you go to the way you practice BRP using inhibitory learning, right? The recall of the new behavior instead of the recall of the old behavior. You continuously practice the new behavior until it becomes second nature.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're coming to a close. This has been super helpful. But oh
1: dear, we come to it no, though. I it's know we simple. could
0: have a little chat. I do want to thank yeah. you though too for sharing that personal example because I think it, it's powerful. And it even when you look at somebody who has done a lot of research, who's been a lead practitioner, you're on the scientific and advisory board, you're the chief clinical officer at NoCD, and mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, yeah. Even you can sit there and go, yeah, we're not all superheroes and I can know the different things. It still has to be an active choice. And Mm -hmm. there's no shame in going, you know what, I gave into that. Why did this person give in and I didn't? You know what, our brain's braining. And when people are in that space, when they're in that heightened distress and they're in fight, flight, or freeze mode, they're just trying to survive. They're not thinking about all their education they're in those 19 seconds I bet they're not thinking about the documentaries and all the research and right yep. they're they're reacting in real time and so there's no shame in that but it doesn't mean we can't change the way our brain has learned to respond and so we're Absolutely. not going to change our neurochemistry I don't you know we're not to that part of the future with like star trekky <laughs> things are yeah. so they like Bip,ip,ip,ip. okay you're good now there you go right right. Mm-hmm. right so until that gets online if you grew up when I did you really thought the 2000s were going to be a lot more impressive than they been so they're like we'll be flying around and all these things but yeah our brains going to brain and so it's about how do we change the learning in the brain and that makes a big difference so this is quite the transition. I pulled out my DSM five, my little like uh little DSM five handy guide, right? Not the big old honkin' mm-hmm. uh, honkin' one, but just the little one. And I was looking at some of the changes, some of the nuance changes, because I grew up uh, professionally on the four TR. And so oh. I was looking at this column here for OCD. You can notice all these. Even without even being able to read it, all of these have different markings. This is the OCD category of nothing registering on diagnoses associated with substance class, alcohol, mm-hmm. caffeine, cannabis, hallucinogens, and it goes on and on. The only thing that was even acknowledged could perhaps come with onset of intoxication or withdrawal with stimulants and other, mm-hmm. but they listed a comprehensive list of pretty common... Yeah. Things And so I thought how interesting is part of why I was like, when did that research come out? Because the DSM updated and it was prolific right? at the time in 2013 out of the American mm-hmm. Psychiatric Association. We have a whole column where we can look at all, all these different things. things. And OCD is the one where we know we know it's different. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the frustration, too. And we, we touched on it a little bit earlier of like, what do we do to bridge that gap? I know that there is an OCD special interest group. Well, yep. there's That's many. why we
1: founded it. Stacey Conroy and I and, have uh, founded it. And, you know, thanks to Kelly and, and Lauren and some other people, Alexander, who are just really helping us out as well, too, to promote things. But we try to get a talk at the conference every year. Mm-hmm. And we, we do a webinar on the second Monday of the month through an OCD on OCD and SUD. And we have the website and it's trying to gather more and more information or trying to convince people that this can be a really fascinating career to investigate something that needs more investigation.
0: Yeah. So if somebody, if, you know, the noodle in the haystack listening to this is like, you know what, I have been trying to brainstorm what direction I'm going to take my dessert or, or a master's thesis. Would you recommend having them go to the website? I'm going to put this on the blog post. Um Perfect. But also this is this has a great list of resources just like those questions we were talking about that were for providers both OCD providers and substance use disorder providers but OCDsud.com is the special interest group website for OCD for this co-occurring overlap and learning more so would that be a good resource for folks to lean into if they're curious about getting more involved or potentially doing some research in this area or what would be your recommendations? Yes.
1: It's a great way to start and then you can get a hold of us through there as well too. And Stacey is, I give her the, all the props. She's really the leader in this area and she's wonderful.
0: Great. And as he said, on that community live stream once a month, There is that topic talking about OCD. and
1: Yeah, come chat with us there as well, too. And check out Riley's Wish Foundation as well.
0: Yes, Riley's Wish Foundation. So we'll add that. I'll add that to my list of resources. Well, one final question for you, if you're up for it.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: So this year I was at the conference and I was listening to, they have, I love the series where they're talking about the science and where it's going. One of the talks they were talking about and ethical considerations they were talking about, of course, they're talking about ERP. They were talking a little bit about ACT. They were also talking about inference based CBT. And inference based CBT is more popular outside of the US. It's gaining more traction as an evidence based practice, still working towards an empirically supported treatment. But I was just curious in terms of, if you're up for the question, what your thoughts are on ICBT and where you see the future going. Because I know Eric Storch is doing a lot of really great work on the neurogenetics and neurobiology and looking not just across ethnicities, but looking across and within the brain and all that. But I was curious if you would offer your thoughts. I know you work for NoCD, so that is that is ERP, but I am yeah. uh, just curious.
1: I've done one kind of review of ICBT, so I've not put it into any kind of practice or anything or mm-hmm. tried it with anyone. I, I don't feel like I could say exactly how I even think it would work or, or anything like that. Uh, there's there's a lot more just to know and read. And it's not out of a willfulness not to know about it. It's just my whole life is C D It's just depression. Sure, so. fair. But, you know, I, I feel like I'd be best able to comment on it if I were to do a little bit more review and training on it and and I've had some discussions with people and one of the things that I I know that I I did like from the first thing that I saw is and I've kind of used this already is this idea of at least what they were describing the training that I, I had seen how much do you trust your senses right and and if you trust it in many areas of your life why don't you trust it in the one area where OCD picks up you know mm-hmm. so so mm-hmm. I thought yeah, that's a fun discussion and, and I've had those kinds of discussions in a roundabout way I've just Been more explicit on them as well too, but I think it'll be interesting to see just exactly where it goes. Will there be peer-reviewed research and what will come out and, and all of that? So let's give it time and see where it goes.
0: Yeah, well, I'm excited to just see with all the research that is being done, ICBT included, but also with. I'm really anxious to see what happens with the Latino study with trying to really extend beyond the western and north american population that we've had for research samples up into this point and really continue to grow i'm hopeful that next time apa updates dsm we have more for ocd and we have more treatment options that are vetted and are continuing to bring hope but you certainly have brought a lot of hope and no cd has brought a lot of hope especially <laughs> We couldn't have seen the pandemic coming, although I guess they say every hundred years or so. We I guess we were a little bit due for one. but But what a source of hope that brings people being able to access from anywhere. You can be in your living room, you can be in your home, you could be at work, you could be in the airport lounge, and you can be able to access services. It's so important. And we know when it comes to OCD that the type of treatment we have really does matter. So thank you for everything that you're doing and contributing. And Taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with the fam here, really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, thank you. It was a it was a pleasure, quite quite a joy to take a little break from the the normal work stuff, and, yeah, and just have these fun chats. So I really I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, same for me. This has been a treat yeah. for me as well, and I appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. Golly. Another big, huge thanks to our compassionate and esteemed guest, Dr. Patrick McGrath. That was really a wonderful conversation, and I really hope it was helpful for you too. So this brings us to my intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show, because y'all, We're family, and I don't know about your family, but my family loves to pack a plate and send it with you out the door or hand you some item that was yours in fourth grade for an untimely reunion. (laughs) So uh, there's that. But I carve out time every episode to try and apply the content that we have discussed during our time together because sometimes we hear things and we're like, yes, Uh, I I get it, it. or no, no, that's tricky, what? Or wow, this, this really makes sense to me. But what do I do with that? How do I use this information and translate it to real life? So today, I want to take that and rewind back to uh, Usher, wink, wink, <laughs> back to Patrick's idea of the 51-49er. I mean, I love this because sometimes, y'all, when we think of change, it can feel like we're saying 100% of this needs to change. And that goal, that unrealistically high goal, doesn't feel possible. But change doesn't have to be 100% to be effective. Like Patrick said, going from the 51-49er to a 49-51er where perhaps 49% of you is compelled to be stuck to do that compulsion because what a But a 2% shift? A 2% shift, fam, towards change? Now that is doable. So my question for you is this. What little shifts can we embrace today? We don't have to pivot 180 degrees. We don't have to move mountains. Our goal, our aim is 2%. So what can we do? We don't have to be someone or something else to experience freedom from OCD or substance use disorder or anxiety. A, that's not realistic, and B, it's not possible. But also, your value is exponentially worth more than the lies OCD or addiction tries to define for you. So what small shifts can we embrace? For the fam, is there a part of you that is still struggling with not being that buffer between the anguish of pain and fear and your loved one? We get it. In fact, we are an entire community of folks that get it. So know you're always welcome and at home here but also leaning into community groups like NoCD offers through their app or teaming with a therapist, that can make such an important difference. And giving yourself permission to not only put on your own oxygen mask first, but to breathe. Yes, your loved one is struggling, but from where you're standing, this is no joke either. And you matter too. For the OCD, OCD OCD-related or addiction sufferers at the table, I'm going to keep it real with you because you know what? This is the fam and the fam. We just say things right. (laughs) But for real, you, you're a tough cookie. You are. You, you're strong. Maybe you're in a place where you can't believe that or you fear that you're a fraud. But I'm confident, fam, that OCD and addiction, they're the real con artists. And maybe you're at a place in your treatment or recovery where you can believe it and know your worth. But the daily battle is still a battle, and you are tired. You, fam, you're not alone either. So lean into your people. Friends, chosen family, treatment buddies, your treatment team, sponsors, your meetings, lean in. Yes, you're tired. And yes, leaning in, that will require some energy from you. But the thing is, when you lean in, the fam is there for you to lean on. You're not alone and we are better together. For practitioners, researchers, advocates, y'all, y'all, you're part of the family too, and you are an essential part of this community. So thank you for all that you do. And I'll ask you, me, us, doing this work, what small shifts can we make? I'm just thinking about this for myself, but I know I... Definitely can add those great questions into my intake assessments regarding substance use. And I know I can bridge with substance abuse counselors in my local region to share more screener questions for OCD. In fact, I'm working on a lunch and learn presentation for my local behavioral health hospital provider, and you bet those questions are making the slides. But there's always ways we can continue to grow in our training, in our understanding, in our clinical practice. But y'all, with that, my heart and my head are full with all of this great content. All the resources that we chatted about today are available over at OCDfamilypodcast.com, so definitely check that out. And join us again next week because y'all, I have a rare interview with Dr. Frederick Ardema, one of the co-founders of inference-based cognitive behavioral therapies. So definitely join us next week for another family chat with Fred, because here there's always a seat open for you. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the Family Chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Patrick keeping it real and giving us all the feels. That's right, I went there. And you can too at
1: OCDFamilyPodcast.com.